Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. This week I am away in Europe, so unable to track the day-by-day movements in the market and the investment trust sector this week. However, in place of the normal contents of the podcast, I have conducted a interesting interview with Sandy Nairn, the manager and executive director now of the Global Opportunities Trust, which is formerly Edinburgh Partners Global Opportunities Trust. Sandy Nairn has been managing this trust since its launch in 2003, and it recently became unusually a self-managed trust with a slightly revised mandate from that which it was pursuing before. It sits in the global equity sector, though as we shall hear, it has a rather different approach to your average conventional global equity trust. I have known Sandy Nairn now for many years. Uh, he is the author of three excellent books on investment history, the most recent of which is called The End of the Everything Bubble, in which he very presently described the kind of market falls we've seen this year. The subheading of this book is Why $75 trillion of Investor Wealth is in Mortal Jeopardy. And his argument is that uh, both the bond and stock markets had reached uh, unsustainably rich valuations in the wake of the easy money financial repression policies of central banks uh, since the global financial crisis. 20 years before that, he wrote another uh, excellent book describing the technology bubbles through the ages, a book called Engines That Move Markets, a fascinating study of past episodes uh, going all the way back to the 19th century and the railway mania when investors have become excessively enthused about a particular type of investment and created some of the most famous asset bubbles of the past, including the TMT bubble. My reason in contacting Sandy and having this conversation with him is to talk about why he was so confident that we would see a big correction in financial markets, and perhaps more importantly than that, whether or not what we've seen so far this year is the end of the sell-off, or merely a staging post along the way to something rather worse. Uh, This podcast was recorded 10 days ago, and so therefore doesn't take into account any uh, events that may have happened since then, including, of course, uh, the latest developments in the ongoing saga of the UK government and its attempts to uh, first instigate a go-for-growth economic policy and subsequently uh, pull back on those objectives. So it's a very interesting and topical subject, which I hope you'll find of interest and to some extent compensate for the lack of uh, immediate news about the week just gone. Uh, subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle will still be able to see all the regular features that are there, including our weekly summary of investment trust movers in terms of share price, NAVs and discounts, and also find there the latest profiles of our regular series now running to more than 50 profiles we put together of prominent investment trusts that you can invest in. So, that continues, as well as some additional feature articles, and you can find that via the Moneymakers website. I'll be back next week with a return of the Ordinary Podcast. I'll be back from holiday, and I will be uh, looking to see whether things have improved while I've been away. I think there's a chance of a uh, end-of-year rally. We've seen those before, uh, which won't necessarily prove that we are out of the current bear market, but uh, time will tell about that, and we will be discussing that Uh, again next week.
Welcome to the podcast, uh, Sandy. We're obviously living through some very interesting and indeed difficult times in the financial markets. Now, last year, you published a book called The End of the Everything Bubble, Why $75 trillion worth of investor wealth is in mortal jeopardy. And you did that because you have a strong conviction that the financial markets were going to go into, I guess I could say, some kind of meltdown. And that indeed is pretty much what we're seeing today, at least so far this year. So first of all, why were you so convinced that we were heading for the kind of markets in which we've actually been experiencing this year? I think the answer is, and I was thinking about a kind of visual for it, is that the can had reached the end of the road. You know, we'd spent a number of years post the financial crisis with layering on central bank level, uh, central government level, various either cash infusions or fiscal measures to keep the economy going. And in my mind, we'd reached a point where it was simply that the magnitude of what had been done couldn't be sustained. And if you couldn't sustain that, then eventually you would kick the props out from asset markets. And the prop, the biggest prop for asset markets was the cost of money being zero or negative, which requires the suppression to continue. And it could have been anything that would break that. The most likely one was obviously inflation, but it, it didn't really matter. I may have said to you once before, I think it's like the straw landing in the camel's back. Well, it was a bale of straw that landed in the camel's back, but it doesn't really matter what it was that did it. They just the room for manoeuvre had gone. I mean, I can quote you a paragraph from that book. Uh, it means we're heading for another painful period in which financial losses will spread through the markets, not only causing losses for investors, but spilling over into the real economy. As an investor who believes history has much to teach us, I find the current complacency of politicians, bankers, and many professional investors about this prospect deeply concerning. Well, I guess what we could say is that all those parties are now waking up to the reality of what you were talking about. Are you surprised that the markets have actually unfolded the way they have this year, the speed at which it's happened and the consistency with which it's happened? There hasn't been, I think, a nine-month period in which both stocks and bonds have fallen by more than 10% since 1920, I read the other day. So it has been fairly dramatic, has it not? It has, but at the same time, we hadn't had a period in history that had been preceded by assets going up so much across the board. You know, So if it had been the case that one asset class had gone up and others hadn't, then I think you would have been surprised if they'd all come down. Normally, you know, one asset class or one part of asset class has a bubble and you can protect yourself like during the TMT bubble by rotating out of it into other ones that are cheaper. But it genuinely was an everything bubble because we've never experienced a period of interest rate suppression that has lasted as long as this one. And if you remove price as a mechanism, then you're going to end up with some very difficult situations that will continue to be revealed in the coming periods. So you never know the timing. I, I felt we would have had some of this pre-COVID. I felt inflation was coming, the yield curve was steepen, and it wouldn't have been as bad. But then COVID hit and we doubled up in all the policies that had been run before. And that, that's what's made it even worse. So not hugely surprised. T to be honest, I was expecting it before this. I, I just felt that at the middle of last year, I just couldn't see how we could go on any longer. So I guess I have to ask you this then. Are we at the end of it yet? Presumably not. I mean, how far can this go? How bad can it get? Could this be as bad in terms of stock market as 2008, the global financial crisis? And is there a systemic risk to the financial system? in there somewhere, which there was last time. So I think it's worse than 2008. 
simply in the asset price question, because if you look at what markets did post-2008 as a byproduct of the policies to stop an implosion in the financial system, markets across the board ramped up in every asset class. But it's, it's the prolonged nature of it that gives, for me, the real cause for, for concerns, because it, the longer something lasts, the more deeply embedded it can get in the system. Dangerous to say, but I don't think we'll see a collapse of the financial system, which was entirely possible 2007-8 because of all the things that have been happening in um, off balance sheet in the banks and the lack of uh, reserves in the banking system and the ability to absorb losses. I think, you know, one of my my kind of criticisms is that we reached the point where you'd recapitalize the banking system and we didn't stop, we just kept going. And that got the asset market patient, if you like, more and more addicted having a stronger and stronger belief that the downside was underwritten. And as soon as you get asymmetry, then it tends to accelerate on itself. So the good news is that I'm not sure that you see systematic risk within the financial sector that brings the whole banking structures down. It doesn't mean the share prices will go up. It doesn't mean there won't be losses. But my belief is that the reserves are strong enough, the banking system will make it through without collapsing and needing bailed out. You know, some banks will need to raise money and there'll be all sorts of things will get revealed. But the systematic risk to bring everything down, which would have been catastrophic in 2007-8, I'm not sure that piece is there. As we know, though, because of these low interest rates, among other effects, there has been a, a massive increase in the amount of debt in the world. In almost every level, household, corporate, government, well, households perhaps a little bit better off than the others. But that debt must be sitting somewhere. So if it isn't a threat to the banking system, where are the risks in the rest of the system? They've gone into pension funds. They've gone into uh, other institutions, have they not? Yes. So I, I think the risk of default is going to rise. I mean, I suppose your starting point, to take a step back or a step to the side, is I'm not hugely involved in the debate about inflation I think it's certainly the case that a decent chunk of current inflation is related to special factors that roll out the system in a year or two. The, the bigger question, I mean, I'm not sure why, for me, I'm not sure why there's a debate about whether there's a recession. I think the only debate is how prolonged it is and how deep it is. And that goes to your question about debt. Um, I'm still hearing lots of arguments about walls of money and liquidity. And to me, that's just looking at one side of the balance sheet and not the other. The biggest issue is going to be liquidity. It's going to be refinancing at reasonable prices. And when you have that, that's part of the contributor to recession and it's part of a contributor to bankruptcy because various private entities will hit cash flow issues and there might be people willing to lend, but they don't actually have the cash to lend to bail them out. So some of the debt will just be extinguished by default. That must be the most likely outcome, I would have thought. So if you open the newspaper or you know talk to people in the market, there are always a lot of speculation about whether the Federal Reserve will pivot or not, whether they'll stop raising interest rates you know, tomorrow, next week, or the week after. But even if they do that, that's not going to change much, is it? Because the problems are more deep-seated than, uh, than simply what the Federal Reserve is doing at this precise yeah, I, moment. I think so. It's hard to know which central bank will do what other than have a general expectation that the heels will be dragged, that the talk will be a lot tougher than the action because all the central banks are populated by really smart people who can read economics as well as anybody else. And they don't want to be blamed for the recession. And you can see it already. You know, this is the Fed's fault. It's not the Fed's fault for what it's doing now. It's the fault of a combination of policies 
that were continued beyond the point where they were necessary, to which asset markets became addicted and to which the owners of the debt didn't demand high enough yields. They believed that the bond market, bull market would go on forever. And apart from anything else, you know, attribution of blame is not really very, very interesting. The biggest question is where do we go from from here? And I think the answer is 1% real yields and widening spreads. And when you get there, and, and so if you're going to get to 1% real yields, you know, core inflation is going to go. And and my guess is being sort of north of four, between four and five is as good a guesstimate as anyway, which means 6% real yields with a credit spread for you know, potential um, default risk. And when you get to that point, then you can start to consider what sort of value there is in that particular market. But the credit spread piece is only just beginning. It has started and it's credit spreads between uh, in sovereigns between core and periphery and in corporates between low and high risk. I mean, we've already seen signs of that, for example, um, across Europe in Italy against Germany, but Germany's also got problems and so on. So do you think, therefore, that uh, I wasn't quite clear of what you were saying, whether you think that actually government bond yields are in fact going to go down again at some point because of recession or because of whatever, or is it just going to stay at a permanently higher level? Yeah, I think they're going to, inverted commas, normalise, which is the 1% real. Okay. That if you invest in a sovereign bond, you actually make a real return for your clients by doing so. Right. So we're talking about whatever the level of inflation is, plus 1%, essentially. That, that's what yeah, you're talking it's, about. It's pretty crude, but for the sake of simplicity, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it seemed to me before that to sit and argue that investors, it, that it was logical, credible and sensible to deliberately take a negative real yield, you know, you have to do some real mental gymnastics to think that's a good idea, unless you're saying there's going to be a depression. And that's not what people were saying. So I think normal economic circumstances is what we're going back to. And the problem is that many have got so used to the post-2008 environment that that was believed to be normal. That was the abnormality, not, not what's happening now. And of course, in the middle of all this, we've got governments trying to work out what to do as well, while also responding to political pressures, the need to win elections and so on. I mean, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about what's happening in the UK at the moment, but I mean, you can see that. You had a very interesting conversation the other day, which you've written up with uh, Lord McPherson, the former Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. And I think the argument is that basically politicians and Liz Truss may well be the first example of this, are just going to have to bend to the wind a little bit. They cannot uh, continue with policies that aren't appropriate for these very different market conditions. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the comment that Nick made, and I kind of use the Attenborough analogy on it, is that you can get away with quite a lot if you're in the middle of the pack. But if you stray from the middle of the pack during a period of stress, then the markets go after you. Because if you look at, you know, to me, if... The economics of a lot of what was proposed, I mean, some of it was neither here nor there in a fiscal sense. The politics of it, the optics of the politics were very poor. And if I was Mr. Market, what I'd be saying is, well, the optics are so poor, the governing party is now going to be in real trouble. They're no longer credible. Um, I need to think through what the alternative is because it's almost like it might have gone from a 40% probability to a 90% probability. I mean, I pluck those out the air. But I mean, the fiscal effect of dropping the, the top marginal rate is not a determinant of where economic growth in the UK is going to go. I, I think it was the crass 
political nature of it that, you know, it seems to me in the outside, you know, clearly payback to the voting population, the Conservative Party, I promised to do this and I've done it. So I think it's as much stepping out of line with everybody else as what was actually proposed. But the main part of your question is absolutely correct that the economic reality is now returning. You know, modern monetary theory and, and actually applied to everybody, not just governments, but central banks and asset markets. You know, the reason certain relationships held in the past is because they're an economic necessity. You can't deviate forever. And the longer you do deviate, it doesn't mean it's more likely that you can keep going. It means you're less likely. And that's the realization that's coming now. So now you have difficult choices to make. You're going to have to raise taxes or cut expenditures in some shape or form. There's no magic bullet that gets you out of this. And those are tough political choices and the losers don't like it, perfectly understandably. This then brings us on to the question of what investors are doing and should be doing. I mean, it's very interesting in your case, uh, Sandy, as I know well, you know, after 30 years, you've been managing equity portfolios professionally for initially for Sir John Templeton and later for other firms, including your own firm, Edinburgh Partners, which has now been sold. And you did a very interesting thing last year, this year, the trust that you manage, the investment trust you manage, which was Edinburgh Partners Global Opportunities Trust, with the boards uh, has proposed and the shelves accepted, turning it into a self-managed trust uh, with a slightly different mandate from the one that you had before, which was essentially a global equity portfolio. And you've done that to give yourself more flexibility to invest in a different way. So can you explain why you did that or why you proposed that and the board put it forward to shareholders and uh, what this different mandate actually means in terms of what you can do now that you weren't able to do as a global equity? Sure. So it's a very quick history. When we set up the trust, we wanted, it was unconstrained, it didn't have a benchmark, and we gave a reasonable latitude to, I mean, the one thing you want to avoid doing is being boxed into buying something when you don't want to buy it, when it's expensive. So there was a bit of you know, reasonable latitude. It was very flexible in terms of cash. There was an up to 10% in potential private equity, which we never actually exercised because we thought we'd a path into it with expert people. It didn't work out that way. And obviously, the one thing you don't do is go down a route where you're not the expert or knowledgeable on it. So largely, it was equities and cash. And when we got up to 2007 and everything looked expensive, we were almost, well, I think we were over a quarter of the portfolio in cash because we just couldn't find cheap enough stocks. And I, I had assumed at the time that was all the flexibility that you required. The problem was that when you have an everything bubble, that flexibility is not enough. That wouldn't protect you, or at least protect the capital the way I felt it needed to be protected. So if all asset classes are expensive, you've got to do different things. And over the years, the investors, the shareholders had got used to what we were doing and had sort of perceived us, many of them, I think slightly wrongly, that as we were just a straightforward value trust, you know, and, and the comparator was the value index. And obviously, valuation is critical to everything, and that hasn't changed. But we wouldn't have been able to protect ourselves from what we thought was coming under the mandate we had. So we felt it appropriate to go back to shareholders. And the book, in a sense, was you know, as you know, when, it, when I write something, it's because I want to make sure that I've thought it through properly and nothing trips you up more than the written words when you realise that the, the logical arguments aren't quite as logical as you thought they were and you have to go away. As they say, the written word does stand to condemn. So that was kind of final straw for me. As I went through it, I could see no way out of this in a tractable economic way. And we went to shareholders and said, can we have more flexibility, please? And 
since this looks like a difference from where we were before, we felt a tender offer to allow some people out if they didn't want us to go down that path. So that was what we did. And the, the incremental flexibility, it was all about protecting capital in the environment we're in. This environment will not last indefinitely. There will be opportunities and we want to protect capital as much as we can for when those opportunities come along. So, you know, we have now 15% of portfolio in a long short fund run by somebody who I think is just fantastic. And the results have been very good on that investment. We have a piece in a private equity fund that reacts counter cyclically to what asset markets do. And that's going quite well as well. We have north of 30% in cash and the equity portfolio is pretty defensive. You know, I would hope in two or three years time, it'll look the exact opposite of that. So, so the way I think about it is when markets are very, very expensive as they were 2007 and we had a lot of cash and now where it's overwhelming, we have the ability to protect. When they're not expensive, then we want to switch and we want to be fully invested in, in the best areas of opportunity. So we're not permanently protecting on the downside through all the little moves in the market. It's just when we get to the extreme position. And then once we've had that protection, we want to switch it back so that we get the benefit of the upside and we don't lag because we're sitting in all these things are capital protected, but don't have a huge upside. Well, and obviously that has been working uh, well so far since the new strategy came in. Uh, your net NAV is up, though the shares are still trading at a discount. Uh, I guess it'll take some time for people to appreciate what you're doing and decide whether they like it or not. As you mentioned, you worked for many years for Sir John Templeton. He was influential in the way you develop your thinking about markets. He died 15 years or so ago. And I guess you're always asked this question, you know, what would he be doing in these circumstances? And how do you think he would have answered that question as well? An investor who'd uh, started way back in the Great Depression. So he uh, had a lot of experience of good times and bad. Before the financial crisis, or just after it, there was a letter discovered in his desk, which was never sent out. And he sort of edited it. And it discussed how concerned he was about the US housing market. And, and I remember I had a dialogue with him about housing market and we, we wondered about comparing the rebuild cost of a house to the, the house index to see, try and pick out the inflation properly. And what he said was he wouldn't go out near anything related to that because the risks were simply too high. He was always very nervous of heavily indebted countries because he felt that one way or another that worked its way back into the system. But I think at root, the genius in my mind that sort of John had was actually simplicity rather than complexity. You know, he would have looked at all the valuations. He would have looked at some of this stuff, I think, identified in the book and said, everything's expensive and I can see the reason. And therefore, if it's expensive, why do I want to be invested in it? And he would have stepped back. The difficulty is, and I think a lot of people working in the financial sector share the same concerns. The problem that they have is an effective institutional constraint that stops them being able to do this, either because of the nature of the mandate or, or various other constraints on the way they can operate. And one of the reasons for going self-managed is you remove all those constraints. Yeah, you're not constrained by uh, having to meet performance targets of fees received and uh, do things in the trust or stay fully invested all the time or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I mean, that wasn't a constraint on this trust. Nobody ever exerted any pressure on me to do that internally, but there are external pressures as well. You can't pick when a market's going to fall. When your portfolio is positioned for it falling and it keeps going up, 
you don't look particularly clever and you get the appropriate commentary for that and you have to be fairly thick-skinned about it and and people in, in this industry, including me, are all a bit precious. You know, we don't like criticism. We're all a bit show ponyish, and you have to fight against that. You know, to go back to your question, one of the reasons he moved to the Bahamas, well, obviously he was supposed to be retiring at the time, but when asked the question about his decision-making, what was the biggest contributor? He said, every mile I moved away from New York. You know, and I think the further away you get from the noise and also having your own money invested in it, you know, you're managing it strictly by the way you think you should to preserve capital in times of stress. And you're not part of it. Because the other part of it is if you're running institutional money, you're often blended with other managers. You know, so the, so the person that gave you the money, that's their job, not yours. And so you, you get into that framework. And there's nothing wrong with that framework. It's just different. This is not within this framework. And, you know, you have to step up and make these decisions and actually, this was the easiest decision to make, the structure of it. There was nothing complex about it. The hardest part is actually implementing it well. So it's not what do you think is going to happen, it's how do you actually do it in practice? And the answer to that is you speak to some really smart people, you explain what you think, and then when they've got more knowledge of areas than you do, you follow their advice. <laughs> well, we'll obviously have to look out for when you move from Edinburgh, where you still are, to Iceland or somewhere or Argentina when you're fully remote from the financial markets. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting that uh, there have been self-managed trusts in the past, perhaps not as many as they used to be. It's rather gone out of fashion a little bit, but there are still some around, uh, quite a few in Scotland as it happens. You know, there's a number I can think of immediately. I guess uh, personal assets would be one that's well known in the investment trust world. And as you said, you are, I think it's in the public record, you're a very significant shareholder in this particular trust. So I guess you're saying to people, well, at least you're getting alignment of interest because if this goes well, I'm going to do well. But if this goes badly, then uh, I'm going to be feeling the pain as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for most managers, I, I think the impact of that's overstated. I mean, everybody really cares about what they do. You know, so it's true, but it, I wouldn't differentiate myself from others. You know, all the people that I know that run trusts, they really care about what they're doing. The other reason is, you know, as time goes on, if it's self-managed, the direct equities that I'm managing, we can reduce the cost of that so that when we outsource to people in specialist areas because we see an opportunity, we can keep the expense ratio down. And that's an important part of this because it's, it's very clear to me that there are things I can do, but there are things I can't do. And there'll be opportunities arising in specific areas. And if you want good people to do those bits for you, you have to pay them. So if I can manage a large part of the assets at relatively low cost, that frees up, if you like, the equivalent of fee payments to give to others in specialist areas to get that expertise. And, and that's pretty important as well. Also, just thinking about some of the things you've done recently, I know that, for example, at the back of your office building, you have the splendid library of mistakes run by uh, Russell Napier, which is a, a charitable venture, which basically is an archive of historical writing about investment, essentially. I mean, that's where they also have lectures and so on. Um, do you think that one of the problems that perhaps is facing the markets these days is that not enough participants and not enough investors, perhaps as well, have a deeper understanding of financial history as you'll be able to read in the library of mistakes, for example? I honestly don't know. The biggest issue for me, and it simply replicates what's happened in history, is a belief that something that is not economically feasible can continue indefinitely, or a belief that you'll be able to cherry pick the time to exit 
before whatever it is rolls over, the kind of greater full piece of this. And I think the, the John Templeton argument is when something's expensive, sell it. And it's as straightforward as, as that on an absolute thing. And, you know, don't try and be too clever about it. I mean, I, I just like reading some of these things, particularly contemporary accounts, because they're just interesting. You know, in a sense, it's a comfort blanket for me because they kind of resonate. So kind of 10 feet away from me, I've got an original copy of The Great Mirror of Folly. Now, I can't speak Dutch, but it's almost like a scrapbook and there's all sorts of fold-outs within it that just explain what was happening at the time. And so I'm a little bit of a collector of those kind of things. And um, that the library of mistakes, I mean, Russell's a class act and, he, and, he, and it's not me that's done this. He's driven all of that. I've just helped a little bit in some of the floor space. You know, I like talking to people about what's happening because you always learn. So I, I've got something you know, 10 yards away from me where there'll be events and I can just nip in the back door and listen. And it's just nice to have a forum, particularly since, you know, next year, all I'm going to be doing is the trust. And I think you need to interact with people, particularly people with diametrically opposed views, because you, you won't learn unless you do that. So it's a wee treat for me that that's kind of out the back door. And I get a chance just to go and sit and listen in or join in some of the dialogue. And I hope it grows. It'd be nice if there, there was a kind of informal meeting space for the community, not just active professional investors, but people with an interest, because you, you really do learn from that and you it makes yourself question. And that hopefully, if it doesn't get you completely confused, eventually helps you make better decisions. Yes. And one of the things that was interesting to me, I mean, 20 years ago, you wrote a, a very interesting book about the TMT bubble, effectively, and how there have been similar bubbles in the past. And yet last year, which is only, what, 20 years on, when we had all the stuff about meme stocks and Bitcoin and SPACs and all the rest of that sort of madness that we had out there, which was only, what, 18 months ago or so. I mean, that was just so like previous episodes when people went slightly mad. Okay, they were it was after the vaccine we discovered, everybody got a bit demob happy about COVID and so on. Uh, but it was quite extraordinary in retrospect, wasn't it? I mean, that must have been a signal to you. <laughs> yeah, I, I went hunting and I haven't put these things together yet for some of the kind of satirical cartoons of the shoeshine boys in 1929 and the investing and stuff. Because it's just a, the reason I wrote these things down in the book was it, everywhere you looked, there was a sign of excess. It wasn't just one or two places, it was every single market. And then things, when you step back and you thought about it, you know, you, there's the cryptocurrencies that have no law of property rights attaching to them. Now, they may or may not work out, but the levels they were getting to when it could all go tomorrow were just, just across the board, really. You know, there's every single sign you wanted. And when you wrote them all down, it helped reinforce the view that you need to do something about this. You need to protect your capital because it's going to be at risk. <laughs> there was a joke, and it was I can't remember when I heard it, but it wasn't a great joke, but it, it talked about somebody in, you know, there was a flood and they were on top of a roof and a helicopter came to pick them up and then a boat and then a somebody swimmer and then but they said no every time they came they said no god will help me out and then eventually they drowned and they got up to the pearly gates and they said you know god i trusted you why didn't you save me and he says well look i sent you a helicopter a boat and a swimmer to pick you up what more do you want well i, I kind of view it in this like you had every sign possible that the market was overvalued and if you're not willing to act on them then you've got an issue <laughs> you certainly do have an issue and uh Unfortunately, those people are suffering even more than uh, than others in the current uh, market situation. Obviously, this is in one sense a rather gloomy conversation, you know, for what's happening to the state of the financial world and what might happen in the housing market or 
the UK politics or any of these issues we look at and bond prices, as you know, equity prices and so on. But I don't think you're necessarily a pessimist about all this, are you? I mean, in the end, this is going to get sorted out. Yeah, I mean, again, in the, the Nick McPherson piece, you know, he, he talked about the power of human ingenuity and, you know, coming through all of these things. And and he used the term Schumpeterian effect of companies getting destroyed and so forth. I just think there's going to be a significant um, human effect in the next couple of years. So from a financial aspect of managing money and taking advantage of opportunities, sure, that's there's lots of things you can do there. And if you can protect your capital, you take advantage. But there's going to be some severe social upheaval. There has to be. And the, the tragic piece of it is pretty much always it's the poor that suffer, poor nations, and then the bottom strata of society. And that will engender political reactions. And then how big those reactions are lead you down potentially different paths. And, you know, we've chatted for a number of years. I'm not a pessimist, naturally. I, I am optimistic about most things. But you also have to be realistic about what's going to unfold in the next couple of years. And, and so in the annual report at the beginning of this year, when I think I said was, as this unfolds, the hardest thing is going to be to sit in your hands, you know, and to wait for it to come to you. That's not to say you don't manage the portfolio and there's things you can do within it, but the big push towards reinvestment, you have to wait for the valuations to come back. And I just think, you know, when we started, I said a recession in my mind, is it just that's not a question. It's how deep and how long. And and people suffer during recessions, unfortunately, you know, so that's going to be very, very difficult. You know, and as we chatted earlier, you know, there's going to be some really tough political decisions that need to be made. And Normally, what happens is you avoid them as long as you possibly can because they're unpleasant, and then when you have no choice, they get made. But we will, you know, we will come through it, and we will grow again, and all of those things will happen. It's just, as an investor, you know, I think we're maybe halfway through this at best. And your mentor, uh, John Templeton, did say, you know, that the time to invest is at the point of maximum pessimism, when everybody is uh, very gloomy. Uh, and the trouble is, you're never quite sure when that arrives, are we? Well, it was one of those great <laughs> phrases because it's an ex-post. <laughs> <laughs> but the various measures of that are, you know, when you refer to history is, you know, what are the valuations on reasonably sensible outlooks relative to what they've been in the past, relative to the cost of capital? You know, there, there are various metrics you can apply to say, you know, just as I think markets got like almost three standard deviations away from historic norms, if you get one or two standard deviations under, then maximum pessimism can't be far away. Yeah. That's just not where we are at the moment, in my mind. On that note, I think we should uh, draw it to a close. Sandy, thank you so much for uh, taking part in the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.